0: A number of years ago, it was noticed in the American Southwest that incidences of tumorous cancers is statistically significantly lower than the rest of North America. And at first they were thinking, maybe it's genetics. But then it turned out anyone who had moved to the American Southwest and had been there, I can't remember, it was 14 years or a certain amount of time, their risk plummeted too. So a whole bunch of research went into this. But it came down to having the prickly pear cactus in your diet.
1: Welcome to the Wild Herbs Podcast, where we unpack and uncover the healing properties of wild herbs so you can heal naturally with the plants beneath your feet. I am your host, April Punsalan, wild, untamed plant lady, also a botanist and ethnobotanist and herbalist dedicated to teaching you how to heal with plants. If you want to learn edible and medicinal plants, you are in the right place, my friend. I'm so excited to have you tune in because I have a special treat for you. Today, I'm interviewing an expert forager, Dr. Mark Merriweather-Voldenbergen. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark's amazing background. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Medicinal Chemistry a PhD in physical organic chemistry. He has one of the best foraging websites and he's been operating that website since 2008. He has a book he published. I will tell you is one of my favorite foraging books. It's the Outdoor Adventure Guide to Foraging, which you should totally get. Yes, it's the bomb. And he has Medicine Man Plant Company, which has some phenomenal products that I am definitely going to buy. And after I figure out which one I need more, which we will get to in this interview. So definitely glad that you're tuning in today because Mark is a resource for sure when it comes to foraging wild herbs and plant medicine. So thank you so much for coming and for your time. Cause as I said, before we started, you're an entrepreneur you're a teacher, you're a healer, you're many things, and I know that time is one of those things that's limited, so thank you.
0: Oh, My pleasure to be here. We've been talking, like you said, for two years behind the scenes, so it's nice to finally get a more face-to-face sort of conversation going.
1: Yes, it is. It really is. So, Meriwether, did I say that right?
0: Meriwether, you talking? said the name, <laughs> Vorderbruggen.
1: Vorderbruggen, okay.
0: Vorderbruggen, yeah.
1: That's, is that
0: German? It's actually what happens to a Dutch name when they move to Germany. Oh! The original name used to be Vorderbruggen and the Germans decided that was too long. So they shortened it and made it the much more efficient Vorderbruggen. Bruderbr- but that was back in the 1700s. It was a while ago.
1: I like it. I like that, the history of your name. So, Meriwether, though, how did you get that nickname?
0: So, I back when I had time, I used to do a lot of hiking and backpacking and kayaking and canoeing. And whenever I was out, I used to drive my hiking buddies nuts because I was always looking at the plants, looking at the mushrooms, trying to figure out what they were, and slowing them down. And it just became a thing. It's gone, Meriwether. We still got eight miles to go. It was in the Lewis and Clark expedition. Meriwether Lewis, his job was to identify potentially useful plants and animals during the great exploration of North America. When I started up the original website, it was actually a blog devoted to hiking and camping in Texas. I decided just at, to hide my identity <laughs> because even back then there were crazies online. I just decided to go with Merryweather and uh... name. And because there are so many R's in my name, I threw an extra R in Merryweather. <laughs> and that Meriwether's Journal is what eventually led to foraging in Texas.
1: That's a really cool story. Botanists and plant people, we don't go very far fast. So you love to learn because you have an MS, okay, and, or BS in medicinal chemistry and a PhD in organic chemistry. I, I love to know how plant secondary metabolites are actually working on the cellular level. So I can only imagine that your plant background has helped you understand fully the process. So I've been learning all the plant phytochemicals and I'm just curious, and this is diving deep really fast. So I apologize in advance, but I'm just wondering saponins, terpenoids, all these plant phytochemicals, can you talk about maybe saponins or terpenoids and just geek out with us a little bit?
0: So, to truly understand that, it would require a lot more chemistry.
1: And okay. basically,
0: we would be having a Star Trek techno babble conversation. Okay. So, Don't I you. knew you were going to ask this question. So, I thought about it and ran through my brain. And, and what other uh, metabolites, as you say, are easier to explain what's going on and would be really useful for your audience? And so, I settled on mucilage. Nice. The plant slime, the slime in okra, in wild violets, in prickly pear cactus, that aloe vera. There's something really cool about this plant slime from a molecular structure. It is perfectly designed to grab onto and hold tightly glucose, the mm. sugars, which means when you consume slimy foods and either starches or sugars in your gut, that sugar will be grabbed by the mucilage and held tightly, which means it can't immediately make the jump into your blood. So the slimy foods are a great way of controlling blood sugar, Mm. which if you look at the rate of diabetes in the country and really in the Western world, it is skyrocketing. Our diets are filled with sugars and starches. and, And if we saw the news, When I was a kid, fats were the bad thing. And so Mm -hmm. to get rid of fats, they replaced everything with sugar because sugar is fine. As long as you brush your teeth, sugar is not fine. It causes all sorts of other health problems, as we can see with the huge amounts of diabetes. And so just adding the slimy foods with the mucilage that grabs that sugar and holds it is a great way of controlling the blood sugar.
1: That is interesting. I never thought, I always think about mucilaginous herbs as coating the lining of our mucous membranes and helping inflammation. And But I never thought about it in terms of grabbing on to glucose and keeping it from circulating in the blood. Is that what it
0: does? It basically keeps it trapped in the digestive system and only slowly releases it or not even releases all of it.
1: I'm going to have to share that with people and I'll have to put a plug into you and be like, I learned that from Meriwether. I did not know that before. So you have one of my best or one of my favorite foraging books. I love it. It has a lot of less common, more obscure plants, which I think is really cool. It is the Outdoor Adventure Guides to Foraging, Explore Nature's Bounty and Turn Your Forage Finds into Flavorful Feast. And so you put your heart and soul into this book, I can tell. And you obviously have, you have a lot of years of foraging experience. How did you get started foraging? Can you tell us a little bit about when you first fell in love with plants and when you knew that wild plants were going to be your thing?
0: So my earliest good memories were out gathering different wild plants with my mom and my dad and aunts and uncles. Both my parents were children of the great depression. And so one of the ways the small farming communities where I grew up in got through that terrible time back in the depression was through a knowledge of edible plants. I have two brothers. All three of us were born in a two-year period. And my parents Um, quickly figured out the only way they were going to survive us is if they took us out into the woods every day and run us ragged. And while we're out there, they used it as an opportunity to teach us all the plants that they used to use when they were growing up as food and as medicine. And it was just so cool. And back then, the really, the only books that offered any extra information was Yule Gibbons, The Stalking the uh, Wild Asparagus, and the different Boy Scout guides. And so I grabbed those and just studied and loved it. And my original plan, though, was to become an astronaut. Because you're born knowing you're going to be a scientist. I knew I was going to be a scientist but I wanted to be an astronaut, but something absolutely terrible happened in the eighth grade. I grew over six foot three. Wow! I ended up at six five. The NASA doesn't allow astronauts above six three because they can't make spacesuits bigger than that. And so I couldn't be an astronaut. So what am I going to do? I love plants. I love chemistry. There's no money in botany. <laughs> I would figured that out already. So I said, I love the medicinal properties of plants and all this sort of stuff. And there doesn't seem to be a lot going on in that. So let's become a chemist. And then the plan was to get the degrees in a medicinal chemistry and go work for like Pfizer or something like that. But luckily I didn't. I took the other path and focused on the natural products. So my PhD is actually physical organic chemistry, which isn't making molecules. It is looking at a system and figuring out what the molecule you need to change that system in a way you want. I, I liken it to getting the fundamental units of the universe dancing together to the tune I'm playing because I'm bigotistical. But all that just over and over just drew me deeper and deeper into the plants. And then going back to my original website, the Meriwether's journal, it was somewhat popular, but when I mentioned the different edible medicinal plants and mushrooms I was finding, Those were the posts that really got people's attention. Mm. And it actually then led to people contacting me and saying, hey, we're going camping next weekend. Will you come with and teach us wild edibles?" Yeah, sure. And then in 2008, the Houston Arboretum contacted me and said, hey, we hear you teach wild edible plant classes. Will you do one for us? And yeah, sure. So I did one in the fall of 2008, two in the spring of 2009, and then it became a monthly class up until COVID hit. And then from there, it led to the book deals and teaching all over the country. And basically, everyone wants to know what they can eat, what they can use as medicine.
1: So can you share, because a lot of people, it seems, are really getting interested in foraging. And I would love to hear your recommendations. Can you share with my audience three tips, three tips to get them started and to help them on the path? up to foraging and self-sufficiency?
0: And that's a great question because that is something that's what I try and teach. I teach just about every weekend the foraging. And I start with, when you leave this class, this is what you need to do to retain it, not just to retain it, but even if you were starting over, but people don't know how to look at plants. When they look out at nature, they just see this green mass and it's almost intimidating and scary to them. They don't know where to start. And starting well is half the battle or more. So I say, okay, the first thing you need to, don't go looking for edible medicinal plants. Go looking for plants, identify them, and then look up what their edible medicinal uses are now. That's so much easier now because there's Google. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, and even more precisely, start with the trees. Go out, walk out your door, look around, figure out what trees are around you. Trees are usually the easiest things to identify. And as far as like the plant identification apps that are on the phones now and so forth, they generally suck for most things, but they're all right for trees. Mm. So using it to identify the trees. Figuring out what all the different trees are that are just around your house, your neighborhood, the the nearby park. And then from that, take the names and just Google Elm tree, edible, medicinal, and what pops up. Hopefully my website. (laughs) (laughs) But this has two things. First, you get, it's easy. Yeah. Identifying the trees, as far as identifying plants go, identifying trees is by far the easiest thing to identify. Plus, you get instant rewards. Our brains love instant rewards. And so you immediately go, oh, wow, that's a pine tree. I can make tea from the pine needles. I can use the pollen as a testosterone supplement. I can eat the pine, the pine nuts. I can eat the inner bark, all this great stuff. And so as you go through that, you get this instant reward. Wow, I got all this stuff. And even if you just stop there, you suddenly know a whole bunch about your neighborhood. But why stop there? Next level landscaping plants because that's the next yeah. easiest to identify you go around if you don't know your landscaping plant simply take a picture of it go to a local nursery and say what is this and they will say well, that's a turks cap or an ellie agnes or a great, uh, great myrtle or a wax myrtle or they'll tell you, and right. then you go, thank you and you go home google the purple sage of Texas, edible medicinal, and bring up those things there. So now you got the trees, you got your landscaping plants, you got your neighbor's landscaping plants, you got all that. Wow, you got a huge amount of information already. Then the next thing I go after is vines. Mm. Are there vines around? Because vines are a fairly small selection of, of plants. And if you just Google like here, vines of Texas, there are mm-hmm. several documents that will list with pictures all the different vines you find in Texas. So that's another one that's, in the scheme of things, very easy to identify. So now you got I mean, knowledge, <laughs> which is a great combination. After you've done all, that's when you start looking at the little bitty weeds because those require more effort. So mm-hmm. I mean, you already need these wins to keep you motivated to figure that out.
1: I so love. It's, that.
0: it's a lot about hacking your brain giving it what it wants, making it feel good, and using that because there's motivation and dedication. Those are two separate things. Motivation is easy. Dedication is hard. Mm. And this is a way to stay dedicated to learning the plants. Going through that series, boom, you got it.
1: Man, that is good. I know y'all are eating that up. (laughs) I know my audience is eating that up because I was, you're talking about the trees and one of my new teachers, his name's Dr. Nita. He talks about how the trees are brothers and sisters and they Like Eastern Red Cedar, he talks about being the tree or Juniperus, the genus, being the tree longevity, right? Mm -hmm. And the different parts of the tree being good for the different parts of the body and the trees, man, they have so much medicine. So that is phenomenal advice. Start with the trees. And the other thing is the trees, you can do it even if you're in the middle of the city, even Mm -hmm. if you're in New York City. You might be scared of the pollutants, but it's probably better to work with the tree than not to work with the tree. To be honest, I saw on your website that you had calla lilies. Is that it? Or canna,
0: canna lilies,
1: canna lilies. Yes. Can you talk about your relationship with canna lilies and how you started working with them and, and what can my listeners do with them? Cause there's a lot in Charleston. There's a lot in tropical oh, areas.
0: I was just looking, the canna across the street have succumbed to the, the lack of rain. I was gonna turn the camera to the viewers, but canna they look like small banana plants really. They have these big flat leaves. Uh, if you know a banana tree, it's like a small version of banana tree, but they're not in the same family as bananas. They're not related. The original canna lilies, there's basically two forms. One came from the Pacific Northwest and the other from the Andes down in Peru. They're beautiful plants. They're very durable for the most part to water them. But most people don't realize, if you plant them, you realize they have big tubers. This big tuber is loaded with starch. And percentage-wise, it has a higher amount of starch, and therefore a higher amount of calories, than potatoes. And in the original places where they're from, they were considered a staple food. They were, it was their potato. I guess in the Andes, they had potato potatoes, but this was just another starchy calorie root. And so from that, it's just food. My Thanksgiving feast involved mashed canna roots rather than potatoes, just because it amused me. And it's always fun to spring surprising foods on people after they said, wow, these are really good.
1: A lot of people have them and I've seen them displace wild herbs. And I've been like, no, I'm not planting canna lilies. And then after I read that on your website, I was like, I do have that little area in my yard. That's totally cut off. Like the plants can't, it's just a little square with a patio. And I'm thinking about planting all the plants, the exotic plants that people gave me. My big thing has been finding food with starch, carbohydrates. Yeah. So I don't have to do the wheat.
0: Because that's a, a big thing about foraging. It's easy to get vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and phytochemical and all this good stuff. Calories is tricky. And when it comes right down to it, especially in a survival disaster, whatever sort of situation, calories are what you need more than anything else. So I have Johnny Canna Lily, Canna lilies all over the place as nice. secret food sources just because they look good. People don't mind them. They don't realize there's a whole bunch of food hidden underground there in case the the next apocalypse comes.
1: You're smart. Yeah. That's one of the things I've been working on is wild carbohydrates and tubers. Cause you're right. What are you going to eat to fill that belly to mm-hmm. make that belly, not growl?
0: It's easy to fill the belly. It's hard to fill it with stuff that will give you the energy you need to do all the labor associated. With-
1: yeah. That's a good point. So you said, which piqued my interest, pine pollen for men. And so I've worked with the, the pine cones before they're open, but how are you working with pine pollen to support men's health? Can you talk to our, uh, the audience about that?
0: So the pine pollen, and it varies in concentration from tree to tree. Most of the research has been done on the white pines, but the pine pollens contain a number of different androgens and mm-hmm. testosterone. So not only testosterone, but also the precursor molecules that the body then converts into testosterone. The issue though, is if you just consume the pollen into your digestive system, the testosterone and the androgens get torn apart. So they don't remain as testosterone as androgens. So you don't want to consume it, the pine pollen, specifically into your gut. So how do you get it? The other things about the estrogen and these androgens is they are very soluble in alcohol mm. and very soluble in fats. They're not soluble mm. in water. So making a tea is out, but an alcohol tincture or a fat where you just mix the, the pollen and like beef tallow or you know whatever tallow you happen to have, very gently simmer it for a while and then use it sublingually. So you basically take a spoonful and hold it in your mouth. Mm. because the testosterone then will pass through the the tissues of your mouth, under your tongue, the soft tissues and be absorbed into the body that rather than swallowing it in. If you look at the different testosterone supplements, uh, a lot of them are gels or patches Mm. for that reason. So, and if you don't want to hold it in your mouth, it's also the bottom of your feet. Wow. Think about the bottom of your feet, sweaty feet. Feet are loaded with really big sweat pores. It's one of our main places where we dump sweat to get rid of heat. It also means it's really good at absorbing stuff that is touching the feet. So taking your bare grease, (laughs) pine pollen salve, applying it to your feet every night. I'd be happy.
1: (laughs) I study Ayurvedic medicine and in Ayurvedic medicine, they talk about rubbing the feet with oil at night and, and they cook a lot of herbs in oil and fat. Yeah. And I'm starting to realize how important that is and how effective of a mode of administration it is for other herbs versus just water or alcohol. And the different okay, types, go-, <laughs> you know. go ahead.
0: Chemistry time. Yeah. So you've heard like dissolves like somewhere mm-hmm. in chemistry. That's why like a cube of sugar will dissolve in water. But if you drop it in olive oil, it just sits there. So matching the particular compounds in the herbs, in the plants, in the mushrooms to what they are soluble in is a big part of herbal medicine because you can't just make a tea out of anything you want. You can't just make a tincture out of anything you want. You can't just make a salve out of anything you want. You need to have it match the solvent and solute need to be compact. And that's something I see over and over. People are saying, yeah, I made this tinker. I made this tea. And it's like any effect you're getting from that is placebo because the compounds are not going to be in there.
1: Yeah. It's important to know what you're treating and what your, what plant secondary metabolites you're trying to extract. And it does come down to experience too and knowledge, Cause I don't really like tinctures, I don't really like alcohol. And that's because I have a lot of fire. I'm like, are you a pitta? And if you ever put like mm-hmm. alcohol and water, you just, the water just disperses. Right. Yep. So I have no extra water to spare uh. in my body, but rosemary, like I have to extract the rosemary and alcohol because I love that resin and I love extracting the resinous plants from alcohol. Do you work with mini tree resins? This is a selfish question
0: for myself. (laughs) I I would say if you are going to focus on tree resins, the Uh tree you need to be focused on is sweet gum. Because of all the different resins out there, especially here in North America, found all across North America, and especially up by you, down here by me, the scientific research on the sap, the resin of sweet gum is absolutely astounding. It is a surprisingly ancient tree to live this long It's had to develop all sorts of ways of protecting itself. And because nature repeats over and over things that work, the same things that help protect the sweet gum tree work really well in protecting us. So yeah, focus on the sweet gum and yeah, I
1: love sweet gum.
0: any sort of issue. There's probably some scientific research saying, yeah, it, it actually helps her.
1: So do you, would your number one way, what would be the best way you think to extract the medicine from sweet gum?
0: So going back, looking at the chemistry of the different molecules that have been elucidated, usually an alcohol tincture. Alcohol. Yeah. Um, But then going back to like saponins are very water soluble, Mm -hmm. but off the top of my head, yeah, there are some saponins in the sweet gum resin, but not that much, but it does come down to, what specifically am I trying to pull out? Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time going through the scientific literature saying, okay, this tree does that, have they figured out which molecules? Okay, do they know the structure of that molecule? Okay, now I can, from looking at the structure, I can pretty much guess what will be the best solvent for it, just from the chemistry background.
1: Yes, that's such a valuable background to have in plant medicine. I think it really helps you understand the medicine on a, such a deep level.
0: And it so, also allows you to make comparisons. And like you may discover this plant through taste that has bitterness. What are the bitters in here? Oh, okay. They're tannins or flavonoids or
1: something. Right. Um,
0: and so there isn't a lot of literature on the medicinal use of that plant. But because it has those compounds in it, in an emergency situation, I'll go ahead and use it as long as I already have convinced myself there are other than t- toxic issues in it.
1: Yeah, that's always the first step, right, to make sure yeah. it's not poisonous. <laughs> yep. So I wanted to ask you about yellow dock because on this is rumex crispus. Oh, I couldn't get the whatever this grass is. Yes, curled dock. You call it curled doc. Rumex yeah. crispus. You I did a post and you asked, you said on that post that if the roots sit for a long time if they age they become anti-cancer. And I'm like, okay, these roots are very aged. So, what's the difference between them being we just harvested them, we make a syrup because I made a syrup with them fresh versus now it's so it's hard as a rock.
0: Yeah.
1: And okay. I sliced yeah. them. <laughs> But can you talk about the yellow dock root?
0: So when you harvest these, the curled dock after the upper part has died and you're letting it sit there, there's all sorts of chemistry still going on inside the roots. And plants have cycles. They have, at this stage, I do this. At this stage, I do that. I make the flowers. I make the seed. Duh, duh, duh. And so after the upper stuff has the roots switch over okay now it's time to do this chemistry in here so you have all these molecules in the roots and they're changing into new molecules in the roots and some of these new molecules have been found to be very anti-cancer curl doc has a big thick tap root one thing that you can pretty much assume whenever you see these big thick long tap roots is that they are absorbing a lot of stuff from the soil. And if you look at where the curled dock are found, they're usually found in disturbed, damaged, abused areas. So they are part of the nurse plant division. So if you have damaged soil, not a lot of roots, when it rains, the minerals and other water-soluble chemicals get leached deeper and deeper into the soil where the regular plants can't get them. But these plants with the deep tap roots, like the dandelion and the curled dock, they can send their roots deep down, start absorbing these minerals, bringing them back up into their leaves. So when they die, these minerals get added back to the top of the soil, along with all the decomposed, like humic acid and fulvic acid and all that work as a sponge to hold the things atop. At the so they are designed to be sucking things out of the soil and bringing them into the leaves. Now, when you got all these resources, nature doesn't waste anything. Mm-hmm. Plants have an immune system. Plants are constantly fighting fungus and everything else. And so it goes, if I start attaching this to that and the other thing there, suddenly insects aren't going to be bothering me. Fungus isn't going to be bothering me. Yeah. So that leads to the antimicrobial antifungal properties of the plant. Herbivores generally don't like bitter foods. And so over and over and over plants come up with ways of creating bitter molecules basically to help prevent them being munched on by the things I like to munch on plants. Ironically, humans actually have developed a taste for the bitterness and the different compounds in particular, it stimulates the digestive juices. Mm-hmm. You know, again, a rule of thumb here, if the bitter molecules, they stimulate the the, the gallbladder, the, the spleen, and the stomach acid so that you can break down the food more and get more nutrients out of it. It grows in a wet damaged area and to do so, it's developed all these medicinal compounds. And so, yeah, I love tincturing it or even just poulticing it, depending on the type of issue. So like skin infections, wounds, things like that, either just as a mashed up poultice, or as in this case, the particular compounds are water soluble, So taking the either the dried leaves and then mixing just a little bit of hot water with them, mixing it up to about the consistency of toothpaste, putting that between two layers of gauze, putting that on the wound to flood the zone with the antimicrobial and antifungal properties. Because when it comes right down to it, if you can prevent infection of a wound, You can really survive some pretty grievous wounds. Mm -hmm. Uh. And
1: what do you think about if it was a fresh wound, like it was a big open wound? Because a lot of times I'm hesitant. Aloe, I feel safe. And some of the other herbs, like I'll put around, or when it's after a day or two with my daughter, then I feel more safe putting like pulstice of plants. But when it's so fresh and like bleeding, maybe yarrow or something to get to stop bleeding there's a time. It seems like with wound healing, there's a time for different herbs. Anyway, I like how you said you put it in between two gau- like things of gauze because then you could put it on a pretty fresh wound.
0: Yeah. I, I love this question because the answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. What does it depend on? One thing is how much access do you have to clean water? Are you Did you cut yourself while cooking and you're in the house and you can wash the wound out really well? Or are you on a 10 day survival hiking trip and you laid your leg open with an ax (laughs) and how long will it take to get back to civilization and judgment like that less access I have to clean, fresh water. The more likely I'm going to start grabbing plants. Once, like you say, once the bleeding has stopped and I've been in situations where that's been done multiple times and God willing so far, haven't had a problem, (laughs) knock on wood, whatever. But knowing when like the credo of healers is first do no harm. Mm-hmm. And so assessing the situation and deciding is this going to be beneficial or potentially harmful, judging those risks yeah. comes into play.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And watching, mindful watching when I just had to heal my daughter, one of her really bad wounds, and they wanted me to give her oral antibiotics, but I didn't. But it was that watching and she was like, I trust you. And I appreciate the nurse. And she called me back and she asked me questions. I actually asked her, I was like, do you have a practice? And she was like, no, I'm just an ER nurse. But I was like, man, you would be really good family nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. We'll be wrapping things up soon. So Mm -hmm. I think it would be good for us to talk a bit about the importance of plants, wild herbs, making the body resilient against cancer because cancer is becoming the leading cause of death over heart disease in our country. And in some areas, they don't even have a word for cancer. The areas where it's developing and they just eat nothing but wild herbs and they're active all the time. My stepdad just passed from colon cancer and my aunt had breast cancer. And I think we all have these stories, right? Because it's becoming so common. And I read one in three Americans will get cancer. And so- I would love to hear if you have any advice for the listeners on how to make your body a cancer-fighting machine and which herbs would you gravitate towards?
0: Let's jump to what is what I consider to be the best plant.
1: Okay, yes, I would love that.
0: Because this is something people can incorporate into their diet every day. It may surprise you, prickly pear cactus. Wow. The pads of prickly pear cactus. So when a medicinal chemist is trying to find new medicinal molecules, one of the techniques is to look at a group of people that have a specific diet and see what sort of health they have compared to the others around them that are eating in the same sort of ecosystem, if you will, of life, but are eating different foods. A number of years ago, it was noticed in the American Southwest that incidences of tumorous cancers is statistically significantly lower than the rest of North America. And at first they were thinking, maybe maybe it's genetics. But then it turned out anyone who had moved to the American Southwest and had been there, I can't remember, it was 14 years or a certain amount of time, their risk plummeted too. So a whole bunch of research went into this, but it came down to having the prickly pear cactus in your diet. They haven't figured out what in it is doing the protective thing, but every morning now I have two eggs and I chop up, I get the Goya brown, Goya brand jar of Nopales, the prickly pear cactus pads from the grocery store and chop up about a half a cup of that in it and mix it all up and eat it every day. Statistically, that should greatly reduce my, my chances. But then what is cancer is a big question. And cancer is basically when your cells divide and then keep dividing rather than dividing and then one dies. And so it's basically the cells aren't dying by their programmed cell death. And the reason for this, there's a multitude of different reasons because there's a whole bunch of different proteins and chemical pathways and, and, and things going on that tell the cell, reproduce and die. And if you screw up any one of those signals, suddenly you end up with reproducing and not dying. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to cancer fighting plants, they all have different molecules in it. And so they really will only work on one of those signal agents. And so if this is a signal that went wrong, this plant helps with that. But if it's this one over here, this plant. But there's something at least in prickly pear cactus that seems to work on multiple of these path broken pathways.
1: That's really interesting.
0: I so, why basically coming up with a cure for cancer is so hard because there's so many different causes for cancer.
1: Yeah, I yes, I do a lot of cancer research, and it seems like. The more diversity you can get into your diet plants, the better, the more antioxidants. Like I was mm-hmm. reading our cells have, they become unstable because of the free radicals. The atom yeah. doesn't have all its electrons. And then the antioxidant has extra electrons. And it gives that to the atom in our cell that then makes that atom stable, right?
0: It's I, I so like this analogy. It's more, okay. So you got this free radical. Uh That is a hand grenade that is perfectly shaped bind to our DNA and then blow up. And once you damage the DNA, you damage that section of the DNA that produces a protein. So the protein gets made wrong and then the signal is bad. Antioxidants are like Captain America throwing themselves onto the free radical before it can get to the DNA. And Mm -hmm. when it explodes, it just contains the explosion.
1: That's interesting.
0: Yeah. yeah so it's it's seen... like they bind to the free radicals and keep them from being able to do damage rather than stabilizing the DNA or things like that. In most cases, Berberine is slightly different, but that's a whole nother <laughs> lecture.
1: Yeah. I was just working with yellow root a little bit, like xanthoriza, But can so... The free radicals, they if you don't have enough antioxidants, if you're not eating enough vegetables and wild herbs, then they can lead to cancer, right? Because they right. make our cells more unstable. So how does that affect the cell death? Because you're saying that it's okay. when the cell doesn't die, if yes. that's not too scientific.
0: Okay. No, uh, let me see if I can do this. So you got the DNA controls the proteins and the other things that are being made by the cell. Those proteins then do chemistry in the cell. And so at some point the cell says, okay, it's time to make the proteins that kill me because it's time I've outlived my usefulness and I'm starting to get damaged. And rather than hang around, I've made this new cell. It's fine, it's healthy, it's good to go. So it's my turn to die. So there's somewhere on that DNA code that says, make the proteins that kill me. If the free radicals damage that area, those proteins don't get made or they're corrupted in their making. And so they don't send the signal or they don't cause the chemical cascade, the metabolic pathway to lead to the cell dying. And so the cell doesn't die and Mm. eventually it just reproduces. It reproduces with that damaged DNA. So the cells it creates don't die either. Then you have cancer.
1: That was such a good explanation. And I know if you have to rewind that, listen to that again, because I'm probably going to have to listen to it five times. I'm <laughs> going to have to make a diagram. I'm going to have to label it because I only learn when I write and I'm over here writing, but I'm like, wait, I'm the interviewer. I have to listen. <laughs> I can't just be absorbing. And for me, being a scientist, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are scientists or scientists minded, knowing I think the science behind cancer Uh, helps you understand why it's critically important to make sure your diet is loaded and loaded with antioxidants. Because the way I look at it is we're living in a polluted environment. And so we're eating less than we were eating when our environment was less polluted. And that equation is not good. You don't want to have pollutions, less antioxidants in your diet does set you up to be vulnerable. And that's why cancer is so high in our society. So you're listening to the right channel because learning wild herbs is is just, it's to me, it's everything because then too, it's important for the mental health, like going outside and that is important as well. But anyway, thank you. I can throw one more
0: thing out here. Yes, of course. Okay. So yesterday on my social media, I gave a ranking of the antioxidant powers of different berries because berries are some of the best sources. And- way above everything else, if you measure chemically the antioxidants of these different berries, blueberries are through the roof. Next is cranberries. And then you have blackberries, dewberries, and strawberries are all tied. And then it drops off from there. But the question is, yes, scientists have measured these many antioxidants, but how many are you absorbing? Mm. Because we define, I I could go on basically... An antioxidant basically kills energy. Simplified, simplified thing. We can tell how much of these molecules in the plant per per gram kill energy, bad energy. We'll call it kill bad energy. But how much is actually absorbed by an individual really depends on their own biochemistry. Mm. And so that's why you can't just eat blueberries all the time and figure, yay, I'm protected. That's why you want this big diversity Mm. of foods to get all sorts of these different, slightly different antioxidants to find the ones that match with your chemistry.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: In our lives, our diets used to be huge. We used to eat just a massive variety of plants and mushrooms and organ meats and all that. And it has really shrunk down to basically corn and starch. And we aren't, getting the mixture of antioxidants. If all you eat are strawberries, yeah, you're going to get good stuff from it, but it may not be the best way of doing it. So -hmm. that's why the scientific reason why you want a huge diversity of these high antioxidant fruits, find what works with your biochemistry.
1: Amen to that. I like that. Yeah. You got it. Diversity is so important. I read I forget what website I was on, but there was 12 plants that humans selected for domestication. 12 different definitive, like true species, 12 different species. And then I was reading about how chimpanzees eat about 427 plants and indigenous shamans, North American indigenous people, they knew 400 plus plants. If you read Francis Porchet's book, the, the book that he wrote during the civil war that has 400 plus plants. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my, my goal is always to teach students 50. I think 50 is a good <laughs> number, but I think, yeah, you got to make sure you're eating more than 10 plants in your diet and that can be a challenge. But so I really appreciate you explaining that. And I hope you understand. I hope the listeners, I hope you understand now why it's so important for you to eat a diversity of plants because we have to make ourselves cancer fighting machines. So obviously you have a very good understanding of how the the plant chemistry works because you've had such good, I'm sure you've had really good teachers and working with the plants and you started, you co-founded Medicine Man Plant Company. Right. And so I know your products are phenomenal. I'm going to have to order one because I want to experience your products. And I was looking at your website and you have a lot of good blends. It's hard to pick. <laughs> you have liver pill and gut pill. And I know a lot of people that live in North America are, let's just say, modern countries, developed countries because of the diet, right? And lifestyle. A lot of people's livers are really taxed and the digestive system is not operating at full capacity. If I could only buy one, which one would you suggest and why?
0: Question for you. Have you ever been on antibiotics, like oral antibiotics?
1: Yes. When I had strep throat. Oh, and when I had a really bad urinary infection, but they actually weren't able to heal me with the antibiotics. I stopped taking them and I went to origium yuccafolium rattlesnake master and I was, Mm -hmm. the infection was gone in a day.
0: Cool. Yes. So that being said, the gut pill, the gut pill. Yeah. So there is some amazing detailed and studies showing that a lot of health issues depend or to basically to be healthy, you need the proper amounts of the right gut bacteria. And if you've taken some sort of oral antibiotic There's a very good chance that it knocked out a lot of the good gut bacteria, allowing the bad gut bacteria to take over. And so in the gut pill formula, it has the live lactobacillus and the specific strain that has been found to be most beneficial to most people. There's always some personalized sort of thing. But if you were going to repopulate your gut, you would want this strain of lactobacillus. There's also a, a Vidic trifalia fruit, which is a mixture of three f- fruit that have been shown scientifically, because everything I look at, I need to know the science behind it. Mm-hmm. Before I put my name on the bottle and put it on the shelf. I need to be able to explain what's going on. And in the case of the trifalia fruit, the trifalias, they suppress the bad bacteria mm-hmm. and encourage the good bacteria.
1: That's interesting.
0: So you got that going on. Then there is calendula oil from it. Calendula oil is a fantastic healer of tissues. So if you have damaged skin or any sort of wound, the calendula oil stimulates the healing process of the cells. It's like putting extra at a work site saying, work harder, work faster, work harder, work faster. And so it heals. And so that is to heal the underlying tissue damage. That's part of the whole leaky gut, ulcers, all those sort of things. So helping the tissue repair, but then also marshmallow root, because marshmallow root is a great source of the mucilage to help repair the mucus layer. So if you're going to repair the stomach, you have to, usually there's damage to the mucosal layer, which then leads to the digestive juices and enzymes attacking the underlying tissue. You're basically eating yourself. And so the calendula oil goes in there and starts repairing the underlying tissue damage and the mucosal or the mucus from the marshmallow root (laughs) seals over the top. So you're supporting the gut bacteria, you're suppressing the bad bacteria, you're supporting the good bacteria, you're supplying the good gut bacteria, suppressing the bad gut bacteria, and repairing both layers of tissue in the gut. And then there's what they call the gut-brain axis. There Mm. are neurons in our stomach that are constantly seeing what's going on and reporting to the brain if something needs or something's out of whack. And they've shown a lot of depression and anxiety and so forth can be traced down to problems with the gut. Mm. And so I know once I formulated the gut, I'm generally, I'm a happy guy. I'm under a tremendous amount of stress all the time. I always have, I got this under, I'm Gen X, I got this under control. But when I started really taking my gut pill every day, it's, wow, all right, world, come at me. (laughs) So not just the overall improved digestion and nutrition, but mood enhancement, too. And that's perfectly valid. And there's a lot of scientific proof that, yeah, basically happy gut, happy brain in a lot of ways.
1: Nice. Serotonin,
0: a, a lot of the serotonin is made by our gut bacteria. So things like that.
1: I read the ingredients and I was really impressed with the triphala because I study Ayurvedic medicine and that's such a key that's come up so much in my studies and that is really good for any dosha. So no matter for those of you, for my listeners that know Ayurvedic medicine, like that is good for Pitta, Vata and Kapha. So anyway, I'm definitely going to order a bottle and give it a try. And I definitely have noticed that as I've gotten older, I'm 44 now that I've noticed I have a little, like after I eat a little bit more indigestion and it usually happens more when I'm premenstrual, which is really interesting. Like why obviously everything is a little bit more stressed right before a woman's moon cycle, but I'm paying attention. I'm observing and I'm realizing that I don't know if it's my age. I fasted a bunch this spring. Did I fast a little too long? And so I'm just paying attention. And I want to make sure because I know how vital it is that my digestive system's operating at optimal levels.
0: Mm-hmm. But so we anyway, we have a hard time getting enough of the proper nutrition and optimizing the gut optimizes the nutritional take.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah, we do. We struggle with that. I even struggle mm-hmm. with that. All right. Let's see. I could talk to you for two hours. I'm going to have you back on the show Okay. because I'm like, this could have been two shows because I didn't even get to talk about Smilax Greenbrier. <laughs> but I wasn't going to ask, can I do a fire round? Okay. So what is your favorite digestive wild herb?
0: I'm actually going to go with ginger. Nice. Um, Because it tastes good. It stimulates a bunch of things and it has a nice warm, calming effect. And so it's not one of the bitter herbs, it's not burdock root or some of the others, but overall, if someone's coming to me with digestive issues, that's the first thing I will try. Nice. Simply ginger.
1: Now, what about liver detox herb?
0: Definitely burdock root. So the burdock root is, it stimulates the production of the enzymes that the liver uses to get rid of stuff to detoxify. So again, it's like putting more workers on site, working harder to get rid of all the gunk we've been consuming.
1: Oh, yeah. Burdock root. That's been my favorite herb since I was 16. Really good for me. I don't know. But yeah, it's probably good for everybody. Yeah. So anti-cancer wild herb, you said cactus. prickly pear cactus. Prickly pear yeah. cactus. And then the wild herb, we didn't talk about wild, you said blueberries, but do you have a wild herb, not fruit, but like a wild herb that you could think of that people should learn to pick to protect them from cancer?
0: Okay. So That's the biggest one, it would be mm-hmm. in my opinion is
1: reishi mushroom. Mushrooms. Nice. Yeah. And would you like, cause I heard that their properties aren't extracted as well in water.
0: Right. Is so I do. Oh, yeah. yeah. So going back to like dissolves, like mm-hmm. a proper extraction of reishi would be what's called a double extraction where you start out soaking them in alcohol to extract the alcohol soluble stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you take it and put it in water and extract the water soluble stuff and then combine the two, then take it, take the water fraction, put it in a jar, then take these two jars, combine uh, them. And I- you may see some precipitation. That's just because of solubility. If that happens just before you take the reishi, shake it up really well. So you get both the precipitate and the solution.
1: Now, do you have any reishi products?
0: yes i do actually i have what's called dna defender honey and wow. it is actually honey raw honey infused with reishi chaga and turkey tail
1: mushrooms. wow
0: the mushrooms are freeze-dried powdered mm-hmm. and then mixed with the honey that way
1: yes yes the sweet is really good for people with a lot of fire a lot of yang <laughs> so i felt like i can have as much honey as i want <laughs> It's good for me. Thank you so much for your time. I learned so much and I know my listeners did. You are a wealth of knowledge. I definitely want to have you back on the show. I hope that one day we're out foraging together and we can vibe with each other because I'm sure you're attracted to certain plants and I'm attracted to certain plants. It'd be fun to, I don't know, just to get out and botanize together. So hopefully that happens one day.
0: Here's a teaser. Okay. One of my favorite topics is how did we learn which plants were medicinal? Mm. And it was not trial and error.
1: Okay. Is that a teaser for next time? For real? Yep. Or, okay. Yep. yep. All right. Thank you so much for your energy and for your knowledge <laughs> and for being a teacher and for making medicine that people can buy. What's the best way that people can find you?
0: So, obviously, I want you to go to medicinemanplantco.com. And then there is an actual contact me box there that comes straight to me. Medicine and is two guys. I'm the face in the formulator, and then Stephen Skiff, who keeps me out of jail. <laughs> and so that's it. You're, if, if there's a, a question about my package didn't arrive or it was something like that, it would go to Stephen. Everything else comes to me. If it's, I have this issue, what do you have that will help with it? And even if I don't have something to help with it, I will try and give you advice to. to, I don't carry this product, but this company over here, I trust them, use this and this together and report back, sort of thing.
1: Oh, that's really sweet of you. That's a gift. I'm I'm a
0: medicine man, not a businessman.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you again so much for sharing with my listeners that wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate it. And definitely going to have you back on soon to answer that question. And thank you again.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Of course. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Wild Herb Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Merryweather as much as I did. Now it's time to go find some canna lilies and to make a prickly pear breakfast with the Nopali pads. Make sure that you hit follow so you don't miss any goodness. And if you could, I'd be so grateful if you could give us a good rating. All right, be well. Sending you lots of love.